At the beginning of the crisis, we made some adjustments to our series on the Psalms to reflect the challenges of the pandemic. But we've seen these things over the course of the eight weeks in the Psalms. We've seen that the Psalms strengthen us to find courage in the midst of fearful circumstances. The Psalms have taught us how to cling to God in love, to experience his sense of protection in times of trouble. The Psalms have directed us to put our hopes in the promised righteous rule of Jesus Christ while living under unrighteous leadership. The Psalms have prepared us to persevere through prayer in desperate times. The Psalms have strengthened us to find our portion and our happiness in God rather than looking to the things of our secular culture for our fulfillment and satisfaction. The Psalms have helped us to press us uh, to hold tight to the person of God as revealed in the stories of his deliverance of Israel over Egypt so that we could see ourselves in the broad story of God and, and the ultimate story of Jesus Christ. The Psalms have provided for us examples of how to be honest with God with our pain and with our doubts in times of abandonment and isolation. And the Psalms have helped us to tenaciously hold fast to God uh, as we live between the times and as we wait for Jesus Christ to return. Essentially, for the last eight weeks, we have dug into particular psalms that have, that have addressed and strengthened us to find our hope in God and our strength in God in times of trouble. And sprinkled throughout these psalms, there have been elements of praise, there have been elements of prayer, there have been elements of despair, uh, but each one has had a fairly strong emphasis on directing our hopes and pursuits towards God in the midst of fearful and challenging times. Today's psalm is different. There is no hint of fear or suffering or abandonment. Now, it's not that these things may not be present in the psalmist's life. It's just that they're not addressed. As we pursue the happy and prosperous life that the psalms promise at the beginning... And as we live in lives full of fear and suffering, we have seen that the Psalms, and really all of Scriptures, direct us to seek and understand deliverance from our fear and suffering uh, in very different ways than what we would expect. Sometimes we need to step back from the pain of our suffering. We need to stop seeing God as a therapist who is there for our troubles and we need to recognize God for who he is and acknowledge all of the wondrous and amazing works that he has done in creating and sustaining the universe and everything in it. We need to take in the full grandeur and power of God, the incredible works of love and power that he has performed in his care for us and for all of the world, and we need to acknowledge him and praise him for these things. That's what Psalm 104 is about. It's a psalm of directing our minds and our hearts and our spirits to acknowledge, bless, and praise God. And in doing this, we will find that we will experience a greater degree of happiness and prosperity, especially in the midst of times of fear and suffering. Now, I would not consider myself an artist 
It was a subject that I was strong at in elementary and middle schools, but by high school, uh, more technical aspects of my interest in art emerged in, in technical and architectural drawing. My pull in college towards aerospace engineering was motivated by the desire to create uh, airfoil designs for planes and cars uh, that could integrate both beauty and function. But once my vocational interests and my calling um, directed me towards ministry and to reading and to books and to writing, most of my interests in the arts, recognizing that, that the letters are a form of, of arts, uh, but most of my interests in the arts kind of uh, went to what would be considered hobbies. Now most of my artwork is, is seen in my building of furniture. Over the years, I've built lots of items for our home and for others' homes, uh, bookshelves, cabinets, desks, uh, all kinds of things, uh, obviously, with wood. My current project is one of those fancy workbenches. Future plans include uh, maybe some dining tables and some things like that. Now, if I or the people that I build furniture for were to ever be disgusted in what I built, that would be a very disappointing experience. There's a lot of things that go into making furniture. There are, there's the design and planning, which takes a lot of thought and, and ordering of things. There's the selection of wood, which in itself is a wonderful experience, at least I think so. Then there's the milling of the wood so that you can get it ready for use in the building of the furniture. Then you have the intricate work of, of sawing and routing and planing and joining and gluing and fastening the whole thing to finally put it together. And then there's additionally, obviously, the, the financial investments that go into buying the tools and the, the wood and all of the things needed to, to make it happen. For the end result to be disappointing would be a depressing experience. To take it a step further... For the furniture to be vandalized or destroyed after so much thought, after so much effort, after so much time, and after the money, all of these things, it would actually create a great deal of anger within me for, to, to see my works of art destroyed and misused. Such disrespect and offense would be very hard to tolerate. I think that this would be the case with all of our work. Whether we are producing something, whether we are caring for people, whether we are managing finances, organizing projects, writing and performing music, whatever we do, all of us put a great deal of thought and effort into our work. And hopefully, ideally, we are able to put a great deal of satisfaction and pleasure in our work. These are good things that come out of the work that we do. When we or the intended beneficiaries of our work are not satisfied with what we do, or if we see our work vandalized or destroyed in wanton disregard for us or for the people that we are trying to benefit, it is very offensive and very angering. Now, I bring up this because we're made in the image of God, and being made in the image of God we have the same reaction to the disregard and abuse of our work 
that God does. Psalm 104 is one of the most pronounced and detailed exposition praising God and his works. While almost the entire psalm is devoted to this, there is a statement at the end calling for the destruction of the wicked and of the sinners. It seems somewhat out of place until you start to think about the context of the rest of the psalm and what he means by sinners and the wicked. So let's look at the psalm a bit. The psalm begins and ends with the psalmist speaking to his soul. He is talking to himself. He is directing his mind and his spirit to direct praises and blessings to God. Now, it may seem a little strange to bless God as if there is anything that we can give him that he doesn't already have. But considering how the psalm unfolds and what God delights in, it's actually not a strange or surprising thing at all. God is after what really all of us are after, expressions of devotion and love. Now, to be clear, God doesn't need it as we think of need. Rather, he delights in it. It brings him joy and pleasure. And the scriptures are full of teachings about God doing things for his good pleasure. And part of that pleasure that God receives is, is receiving expressions of gratitude and praise and joy from whom he has created. Much like parents who delight in the happiness of, of their children and in the gratitude of their children when they, when they give things to their children and their children express thanks to them. The psalmist understands this. And he makes an intentional effort to direct his mind and his spirit towards praise and expressions of devotion and of his love toward God. Now, why does he do this? Two things, I think, to consider. First, praise cannot be manufactured. It's simply something that we do out of, a, of, of religious obedience, this is a significant theme in the Psalms and really all of Scripture. God doesn't want us to just praise him out of, out of obedience. It, want, it needs to come from our hearts that are overflowing with praise and adoration and gratitude towards God. And so we see that the psalmist is directing his meditations. He's directing what he thinks about towards things of God and what he does in order that that would generate from the heart expressions of, of joy and gratitude and praise. So then our reflections, our meditations, our truth speaking to ourselves come forth from the heart as sincere expressions of worship and not manufactured. And this raises the second point. You know, last couple weeks, uh, Psalm 88 and Psalm 89 that Lawrence covered, uh, those psalms dealt with people in times of trouble. And this psalmist might be directing his mind and his soul to thoughts of God because he's in a time of trouble. And rather than letting his fearful emotions 
uh, captivate him and direct him and direct him to focus on the trouble that he might be facing, the psalmist may be intentionally choosing to direct his mind and his spirit on God and his good works. We've seen this throughout the Psalms. Now, it's not the only option that we have when we are faced with challenging times. We see that it is indeed good to express our doubts and to express our fears. But if we're looking at the whole message of all the Psalms, and here in particularly Psalm 104, the, happiness and, the happy and prosperous life is found not only in directing our, our needs and our fears and our doubts toward God, but also in stepping out of our suffering and pain and meditating on God and his works that result in an overflow of praise. So, how does the psalmist direct his mind and his spirit? How does he direct his soul? Well, he does two things. He meditates on God, and he meditates on God's works. So first, what are his meditations on God? The psalmist's framework for thinking about God is surprisingly familiar. His imagery and comparisons are much like ours. You know, we've been recently uh, reading and watching Pride and Prejudice as a family. It's one of the books that I encourage my kids to read as they become teenagers. So Alicia's been reading it, and we've been watching all of the various movies uh, based on the book. One of the things that you notice in, in, the, in the story is that whenever a new character is introduced and that character has, has some sort of status in the community, they make comments on the, their income and their clothing and on their servants and on the size of the estate, these kinds of things. This is how we as humans um, evaluate the grandness of, of other people. The psalmist is no different and if you look at it, he speaks about God's clothing. He speaks about God's house. He speaks about God's car and his servants. No other being on earth or in heaven can claim to have these types of possessions in the way God does. God's clothes are the lights of the heavens. The foundations of his house are the atmosphere of the earth. He rides on the wind in the clouds. And his, message, his messengers, his servants, are the wind. Can anyone boast in having such possessions as status as God does? There is none greater than God in terms of, of his status and power and possessions. So with that vision of God in place, which seems somewhat short compared to the rest of the psalm, he then spends the majority of the psalm describing the works of God. The content and order of his descriptions follow Genesis 1, which is the, the narrative of God's creative works in making the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the plant and animal life, everything on earth and in the universe. Now the psalmist has made careful observation of God's created works in the seas, the mountains, the valleys, the rivers, the streams, and how these things all sustain the plant and animal life on earth with both shelter and food. Now, in the middle of the psalm, 
He calls the reader to consider the specific ways that God has created and sustained the world to strengthen and gladden, to to give us courage and to make us happy, the hearts of the people of the world. Through God's work to create and sustain plant and animal life, humanity is able to cultivate crops and raise animals for food and drink and literally, if you look closely, cosmetics. And also, in an interesting note, the psalmist acknowledges God for the creation of days and seasons that help both animals and humanity mark their days, their months, their years. And this provides us and animals a sense of ordering our days and ordering our lives where we recognize that there are, there are times to work, there are times to rest, there are times to celebrate, there are times to sleep. Usually when I hear people talk about the time, it's complaining that they don't have enough. And here God says, this, the psalmist recognizes that, that God has created all of these things for a, a sustaining and ordered life for humanity on the earth. Do we, do we praise God for cosmetics? Do we praise God for how he has built the seasons and days and dark and night? This psalmist does. And the psalmist also recognizes that though God gives these things to create and sustain life, God also takes away the breath from the living creatures, causing all plant and animal life to return to the dust in death. This is part of the cycle as the psalmist then acknowledges that God once again breathes life into his creation, sustaining the cycle of, of life and death and restoration and renewal that God has been doing since he created all things in heaven and on earth. The psalmist then concludes with a statement of blessing, acknowledging and praising God. He makes a, state of, a statement of devotion to God and vows that for the rest of his entire life, he is going to sing praises to God for what God has done. He also states that he desires that his meditations be pleasing to God for he rejoices in God. In one of those statements, he also makes a declaration for God to rejoice in his own works. He says, may God rejoice, the Lord rejoice in his own works. The psalmist wants to align his rejoicing with God's rejoicing. What God delights in, he wants to delight in. If God is to rejoice in his works, then humanity made in the image of God, is also to acknowledge God for who he is and what he has done and to rejoice in him and his works. This requires intentional efforts to observe, think about, and describe what God has done, as the psalmist has. This then leads to the gladdening and strengthening of our hearts and the declaration of God's praises for the good works that he has done. Ultimately, this is the purpose of the psalm, to lead in and demonstrate for readers the process 
of directing our minds and our spirits, our souls, to meditate on God and his works, which results in the sincere overflow of praise and worship to God. Now, as mentioned before, the concluding verse states, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Who are the sinners and the wicked in this psalm? There are no complaints of oppression. There are no specifications of, of sins in terms of laziness or immorality or injustice or any other kinds of sins like that. Now, while people characterized by specific sins would certainly be included in those that the psalmist is considering, the psalmist, I believe, is pointing to a much more consequential and corrupting form of wickedness and sin. The sin of failing to acknowledge God as God and give honor and thanks to him for the good works that he has performed on our behalf and that all of us benefit from. And if you consider this, perhaps the failure to honor God and give thanks is the ultimate sin that leads to all other sins. To this psalmist, there are two categories of people. There are those that acknowledge God and delight in him and his works, and there are those who do not. Just think of it. If we, in our very finite and limited capacities, who create and work to very little effect relative to God, are so offended when our works are disregarded, when our works are abused and destroyed, would not God, who has done so much more, with much more care, over much more time, and with much more thought, and with much more love, would he not be similarly offended? Would he not be just to bring destruction to those who after decades of enjoying and receiving his good things, who continue to fail to acknowledge him and give thanks for them, and who use them to hurt and destroy other aspects of his creation? Would he not be just in his wrath and anger. I can't think of a greater offense. We can clearly see that the psalmist is directing us to acknowledge and worship God for who he is and what he does. Excuse me. What goes into the sincere acknowledgement and praise and worship of God? I think there are four things that this psalm points out. And I want to look at what they are and really why all of us fail to do them. First, we must possess accurate knowledge of God. If we don't understand God, to be the loving creator and sustainer of all things in heaven and on earth, then we will never sincerely worship him. And we will thus never truly experience the prosperity and happiness promised by him and that we are all 
really desperately seeking. Why don't we possess accurate knowledge of God? Well, I think we have to look at what the Psalms have really been promoting since the beginning. We fail to meditate on the law, God's instruction, the word of God, the stories of God. We fail to meditate on it day and night. And why don't we do this? We're not directing our minds and spirits towards God. We're not, we're not taking responsibility for what we think about. We're not taking responsibility for how we speak to ourselves. We are letting our minds and spirits be directed by all of the things that elevate fear and create covetousness within us. It takes intention to direct our thoughts and our spirits. And while it is hard, especially to get started, it is the only way to experience happiness and prosperity from God. That's the first thing, an accurate knowledge and understanding of God. Second, we must acknowledge that the, that the earth is God's work, that the things on the earth and in the earth and in the seas and in the universe, these are God's works. This, this psalm says, it's a beautiful statement, God has created a world that is satisfied with the fruits of his works. God has created a world that when operating according to his design, it sustains itself. The world is God's works and we are God's works. That places us in a sphere of stewardship where our concern and care for the earth and its inhabitants are performed in acts of humility toward God as servants of him. The earth and everything in it is not for us to exploit for our own selfish purposes. When we fail to acknowledge the earth as God's works, then our exploitive efforts introduce corruptions that eventually lead to unsustainable practices that no longer, quote, satisfy. It creates need, which leads to poverty, hunger, thirst, covetousness, violence, and death. The earth is no longer at peace, and we are no longer at peace. Third, the true worship of God flows from an enjoyment of his works. Throughout the Psalms and really all of the wisdom literature, happiness and prosperity flow from our enjoyment of things readily available that God has provided. Satisfying work, loving relationships, and the fruit of our work, specifically food and drink that are mentioned here. If we experience, if it, if we experience these things rightly, then we will experience the happiness and prosperity that leads to sincere worship. But what we do is generally turn these fruits of the pursuit of God into objects of our pursuits. Instead of acknowledging God and his works, we suppress this truth and we worship what he has created instead. And they do not bring us happiness. It's not their intent. God did not create all these things specifically in and of themselves to make us happy. He has created us to enjoy and know him. And then through that, we are able to enjoy all that he has created. 
So rather, in our turn to food and other things that he has blessed us with, we become gluttonous or greedy, which is the insatiable pursuit of things for the sake of simply having them and possessing them, mistakenly believing that they will make us happy. In our turn to drink and other intoxicating substances, we become enslaved addicts. Food and drink and all the other fruits of our labors become objects of hatred and pain rather than objects of joy and satisfaction. To add to that, often in reaction to the suffering and death and pain created by our misuse of God's good gifts, we think evil of them and we denigrate them. Good things that God has created because we, have now, we are now fearful of them. We fear food and drink and sex and all other, other forms of, of pleasure that God has created us for us to enjoy in him for fear of turning them into gods. And obviously that is a temptation. We must learn to walk in enjoying God and enjoying what he has created. And that is an effort of meditating on the law day and night and seeking him and pursuing him. Fearing these things and being afraid to enjoy what God has created does not keep us on the path to know God and to delight in him and to delight in and enjoy his works and then worship him. That's not the path to it. When we give our kids gifts, we want them to enjoy those gifts to the fullest, don't we? But we also want them to remember that the source of that joy is us, not the gift itself. Again, this is something learned, but thankfully this is something that God teaches us. Fourth, these things in turn produce the happiness and the prosperity from God, a sense of his presence and blessing within us, within our souls, that then overflows in sincere joy and worship of him. It's from the heart. It's real. It's not fabricated. It's delightful. It's not rushed. And then this experience of God and his presence and of his works presses us into our own works of worship in service to God and others. Excuse me. So how can we move from canned, insincere lip service to joy-filled, overflowing, and empowering delight in God and, and his works? We know from the teachings of the New Testament that the creator that Psalm 104 speaks about is Jesus Christ. And the scriptures also teach in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are literally works of art fashioned by Jesus Christ, each of us with a specific purpose for his, that specific piece of art. And like any worker or artist, Jesus Christ has been and will all be passionate 
about his works of art. He is passionate about mountains and seas and streams and rivers and lakes and forests and deserts and all of the abundant animal and plant life that he has intricately designed and brought forth in creation. And he is passionate about sustaining that life in constant works of recreation and sustaining. The scriptures are clear to point out that Jesus is not just the creator, but the sustainer of all things. He holds everything together. But he is the most passionate about us, the works of art that he has created in his image. And he is passionate about us enjoying what he has created. And in that passionate love and devotion, he refused to let his works of art be disregarded, abused, and destroyed by evil. Just as humanity goes to great lengths to restore not only valuable works of art, and if you can think of uh, Notre Dame right now being restored after the fire, it wasn't just torn down. It was recognized that this is something that is beautiful that humanity has created. It is something to be treasured. And so we're putting a lot of effort and money into restoring that, that work of art and lots of other examples constantly renewing works of art. That's what we as humans do. It's not just works of art like that. Read just this last week, um, Minneapolis is restoring the, the Central Avenue Bridge going over the, the Mississippi River. And it's not just so that it becomes more structurally sound, which they've got to do. It's got problems. It's decades old. They are restoring it to its original beauty and design. There is an interest that we have as human beings, and we have that interest because we get it from God. We get it from Jesus Christ. So even more so than us, Jesus Christ longs to and has gone to great efforts to reclaim, to restore, and renew his works of art, humanity, and all of his creation. That work was completed on the cross in his great act of demonstrating his love, his passion for his works. And in his power over death, he demonstrated that he will make peace. He will bring the world to a place of once again being satisfied in God's works. In that resurrection from the dead, the curse of evil and its effects on God's works and our works was defeated. The works of art of Jesus Christ will go on. And Jesus is at, the, is at work in the business of restoring, renewing, and recreating what he has created and continues to create. The call of Psalm 104 is to direct our minds and spirits to God, to acknowledge him, and to worship him. But we cannot do that without a soul, without a mind, without a spirit that is captured by the vision that God has for his creation, for his works, for humanity, for Jesus' rule in an eternal kingdom of beauty that is full of his people as his restored works of art. That is the only thing that can generate this type of true worship. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this beautiful psalm. Thank you for your magnificent and wondrous and powerful works to create a world full of beauty, the pinnacle of which, God, according to your word, is humanity.
made in your very image. Lord God, we're thankful, so thankful, that you have promised and fulfilled the promise through Jesus Christ to restore your works, to restore us, and to set us off in a life of enjoying you and all that you have created for your good pleasure for eternity. Pray, God, we pray that you would strengthen us Help us to strengthen our minds, to strengthen our souls. Help us to speak truth to ourselves and to each other so that we as a people can enjoy you and enjoy your work and enjoy each other in the ways that you have designed and intended, that we could give honor and glory to you, that we could bless you, God. In your son's name we pray, amen.